This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 138 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest this week is Edward Davis. He's president and CEO of the Edward Davis Company, a business strategy and security services firm. But he is perhaps best known for his role as former police commissioner of the city of Boston, including during the tragic Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. In the aftermath of that event, he was the face of the city, as his team coordinated and collaborated with other local and national law enforcement agencies. We discuss his experience with the Boston Marathon bombing, we get his insights on law enforcement in the age of ransomware, and we'll get his take on the role of threat intelligence. Joining me in the conversation this week is Recorded Futures' Alan Liska. Stay with us. Ed, let's start out by getting to know you a little bit. Can you take us through, uh, what has your career journey been like? How did you get your start, and what was the path that led you to where you are today? Sure. I was a uh, police officer in in Lowell, Massachusetts in uh, 1980. I started as a patrol officer. I became a detective and worked sexual assault cases and eventually started working organized crime and narcotics task forces with the uh, DEA and the FBI and and other agencies. I did that for, uh, for about 10 years and then I moved into a community policing role for a few months and then eventually was selected to be the police chief in in Lowell, Massachusetts. I did that for 13 years, and then I moved on to to the Boston Police Department, where I was the commissioner there for seven years. I was there during the Boston Marathon. And then I I did a fellowship at Harvard and and ultimately started my own company um, in 2014. Well, before we we dig into uh, some of the questions I know that Alan has for you, I have to ask you about what it was like being on the job there when you had that Boston Marathon bombing. I mean, that that must have been quite an experience. It really was. It was a terrible tragedy for the victims and the uh, families of the victims. Uh, you know, people died here uh, in that in that attack, and, and the whole community was rocked by uh, such a a vicious and unwarranted uh, strike at a, at an event that is a. Uh, very community oriented, so uh, it's um, it was a, a tough thing to, to handle. Uh, very proud of the work that the men and women of the Boston Police Department did, and our other partners in uh, in running these guys down and holding them accountable for uh, for this uh, terrible attack. From a technology point of view, what goes into the work when you're investigating something like that? I'm, I'm imagining uh, things like security cameras, and but there's more to it than that. Yes, there is. Uh, it starts off with communication, command and control, uh, making sure that you can rescue as many victims as you can, uh, making sure that the scene is stabilized and preserved for evidence, and then urgently pursuing the uh, the people responsible. In our particular case, cameras played an enormous role in what happened. Uh, and that's that's evolved over the years. I remember when trace evidence and fingerprints was the most important thing that we dealt with at a crime scene. Now it's about collecting uh, digital uh, data and uh, and reviewing video and other uh, possibilities uh, for collecting evidence like social media. 
Well, we're fortunate to have Alan Liska with us today. Alan, uh, you have some questions for Ed? Yeah. First of all, again, I, I echo uh, Dave's comments that you know the work that you did and that your whole force did in Boston after the bombing was um, was incredible, and you know the whole country was was obviously uh, paying close attention to that, and you know really impressed with everything that you and your team did. Thank you both. So you were on the force for it, it sounds like thirty plus years. Is that about right? Thirty two years. Yep. Obviously, you saw a big change in the evolution of the use of computers in what you're doing, but then also the types of crimes that involved computers over that 32 years. Is that right? Yes, I started uh, doing my work on an Underwood typewriter, so uh, I watched the whole evolution. That's <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Um, what do you think, as far as the use of computers, how's that helped and how, how's that made things easier or better for law enforcement in general? Well, the benefits are uh, enormous, uh, starting with the uh, our initial point of contact uh, in an emergency situation, which is uh, the 911 systems. Uh, we've moved from uh, nine, simple 911 to uh, E911, where we have sort of the enhanced ability to uh, identify uh, locations, not only on landlines, but also importantly, and, and even ever more importantly each year, on mobile uh, phones, we can get the information and know exactly where people are calling from. We can dispatch help there, even if we don't establish any kind of voice contact. And then, you know, moving on from compiling data that comes in there, having that data sent to analytical teams that we have in something called a fusion center, which is very extensive in police agencies across the country right now, where information and data is fused into a product that can help police officers on patrol and detectives who are identifying crime patterns. And then the whole issue of digital evidence. You know, we've got data-driven decision-makings, but we also have a lot of digital evidence that's part of the evidence that needs to be presented at court that needs to be preserved. There needs to be a chain of custody on that evidence. Our technical ability, technological ability, I should say, has gained enormous importance in the provision of justice in this country. That's really interesting. On the other side, obviously, commensurate with your technical capabilities, you've also seen a growth in the technical capabilities of the bad guys. How broadly are the local police involved in cybercrime activities? Well, for a while, that tended to be the purview of the FBI. Uh, when we had a case that came in, largely because we couldn't really establish the location of the uh, bad guy. We use that jurisdictional argument to sort of flip it up to the feds. But as time has gone on and the cases have become so common, more and more police departments are developing an expertise and having people assigned to uh, cyber investigations, uh, particularly in partnership with the uh, Secret Service. So in Boston, we have uh, five or six officers that are assigned I shouldn't say officers, they're detectives, that are assigned to the uh, Secret Service Task Force uh, who handle these cases for us. You know, Edward, it, it strikes me that um, along with the growth in this technology and the tools that are available to you in law enforcement also comes a responsibility to respect people's privacy, to respect their constitutional rights and those sorts of things. What have you experienced over your career in terms of 
the complexity of guarding that responsibility. That's a huge responsibility the police departments have, It really in every component of what they do, from taking people into custody, which we do almost every, well, every day, uh, frankly, making sure that evidence is presented in a constitutional and appropriate way to a court of competent jurisdiction in these cases. It's our basic responsibility as a police official. And the digital challenge makes this even more complex. We found out that over time that before you do anything in the um, technology arena, you really have to have conversations with the community. These things have to be transparent. They have to be published and, and noticed to the community before you do something. And that requires a debate, a presentation, and consultation with organizations like the uh, ACLU so that we can get everybody's perspective on what should happen and try to deliver the best protection we can to the community while protecting people's rights. Alan, you want to follow up? Right. That balance is really important between making sure that you're tracking the cyber criminals, but also protecting the rights of people. Absolutely. Um I want to move into the topic of ransomware, and there are really two sides to this conversation. Obviously, as a cybercrime itself, sometimes the police are called on to help investigate, but then also police forces themselves have been targeted by ransomware. So I I do want to start on the investigative side first. We often hear when uh, an organization gets hit with ransomware that they'll reach out to the FBI But often local police are actually equipped to handle these kind of investigations as well. How often did the Boston Police Force get involved in investigating ransomware attacks? I can tell you that it's a fairly frequent responsibility right now, but that's evolved over the years. I've been out of the position for six years. We had a bit of a presence in that arena six years ago, but I sent some of the first officers to the Secret Service school to study ransomware attacks and other uh, cyber attacks. And those units are growing, uh, not only in the Boston Police Department, but throughout the nation. So as each year goes by, the the responsibility for investigating these things becomes more and more part of the, the local duty and responsibility. And we partner with federal agencies uh, when, when the cases get complicated. So, Ed, uh, bring us up to date on your day-to-day these days. What sort of things are you working on? Well, I have a um, a security uh, consulting firm. We do uh, cyber investigations. We do physical assessments dealing with things like active shooter situations. We have a wide range of responsibilities. I'm very lucky to work with Admiral Mike Brown, who uh, used to set up the uh, DHS Cyber Command, and and the Admiral runs that section of my my office. And uh, because of that, we, we get phone calls from companies all the time about uh, ransomware attacks, other cyber incursions, people that have uh, problems with their sort of perimeter defenses, but also with internal actors. Uh, We all know that the great majority of attacks, uh, successful attacks, are as a result of uh, malicious links. And uh, and so training the people while uh, increasing defenses on the perimeter is really a big part of what we do nowadays. Let me get your take on threat intelligence and the part that you think it plays in people's defenses. Threat intelligence is critical. We could not do any investigation or um, securing of premises, either physical or cyber, without understanding the threat vectors. 
And so no matter where we're working, uh, intelligence is extremely important. We do a lot of protection of news outlets, uh, national companies that unfortunately are subjected to threatening emails and and, uh, text messages and, and phone calls. But to properly analyze those incidents, you really need to understand the system, where these things are coming from. You have to look at open source information. You also have to mine the dark web, and we've done that extensively in our investigations, especially with some of the biggest media outlets in the country. We spend a lot of time working on those cases. They're very complex, but we have been very successful uh, in one case working with the FBI to arrest a man on the uh, West Coast who was heavily armed. So these are real threats. These are the convergence of physical security and cybersecurity is something that we work with every single day. We've talked about the work you've done with helping citizens, but unfortunately, police departments themselves are under attack, either directly being hit with ransomware or indirectly because somebody in a town got hit and the cyber criminal jumped from the town network to the police network and was able to do encryption. What are police forces doing to combat ransomware attacks internally? Well, this is a very complex problem, and and my former colleagues, I met with many of them in Chicago just last month, they were extremely concerned about this problem that's been cropping up around the country. Atlanta uh, is one example, Baltimore. There's been an enormous number of small to medium-sized police departments that have been hit for very relatively small amounts of money. So in the Baltimore case, the ransom was over $100,000. But in most of the cases that we deal with in the smaller towns, the attackers ask for 500 or $1,000. And quite frankly, it becomes a cost-benefit analysis, whether you try to pursue these people. And as distasteful as it is to deal with them, in a lot of cases, you end up paying the ransom. And, and here's the reason. These are critical operations. People's lives hang in the balance when a 911 system goes down, for instance or when an attacker has secured control of things like digital photographs or other digital evidence that's needed to prosecute cases. If you don't get that back, you're going to lose cases in court. People who are victims are not going to receive the satisfaction of the criminal justice system. It's an enormous uh, liability that really affects not only public safety, but also the provision of justice. That's a really important point that I think a lot of people don't understand is it's real easy if you're external to the situation to to say, we'll never pay the ransom. And, And of course, that's always the best advice when possible. But if you are in a situation where a criminal may walk because that evidence has been encrypted and you no longer have access to it, that's potentially a huge problem. And that changes as you say, the cost-benefit analysis. And that's got to be a tough problem for police departments to wrestle with. It certainly is. And, and, and many of my colleagues have simply, with a bad taste in their mouth, they've paid the ransom because the stakes are so high. You know, the other thing that you have to be aware of is that if you're storing digital evidence on a uh, system that's been hacked, all of the evidence now is in question. Things like the chain of custody that is a requirement before we can put any information uh, before a jury, that can be adversely affected. Files can be corrupted. Uh, Photographs can be amended. It's just the the scope of the problem is mind-boggling. 
I want to wrap up with you both. Ed, I'd like to know from your perspective and and all your experience uh, with uh, being in law enforcement, do you find that there are some common misperceptions that folks have when it comes to their interactions or their perspectives with people like you who are in law enforcement? Yeah, well, especially in this area, people don't know who to call when something like this happens. They know that there's been an incident. Sometimes they call their best computer expert to take a look at it. But if you're dealing with the loss of financial resources, the loss of personal information, if you're being held ransom for something that you control, these are criminal acts. And the best thing that you can do is call the police. This is happening more and more throughout the country. Police, this is not a shock to police when they get this call. If they can help you, they will. If they can't help you, they should be able to direct you to places that can try to put you back on your feet. Our thanks to Edward Davis for joining us, and thanks to Recorded Futures' Alan Liska for helping me with the questions this week. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Monica Tadros, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.